Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 431 BC, the long-simmering rivalry between the city-states of Athens and Sparta erupted into open warfare. And for more than a generation, the two were locked in a life-and-death struggle. The war embroiled the entire Greek world, provoking years of butchery previously unparalleled in ancient Greece. Whole cities were exterminated, their men killed, their women and children enslaved. This was the Peloponnesian War, which its historian Thucydides described as a great war and more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. It might seem that a war of approximately 27 years was long enough to be getting on with, but my guest, Jennifer T. Roberts, professor of classics and history at the City University of New York, has written a history of the Peloponnesian War, which argues that the war actually went on much longer than that. In her book, Plague of War, Athens, Sparta, and the Struggle for Ancient Greece, issued in paperback this May by Oxford University Press, she traces the war's titanic influence, not only on the lives of the Greeks, but on the subsequent history of art, history of art, architecture, politics, and philosophy, influences that echo down to the present day. And I should note, this is her second appearance on Historically Thinking in this many months. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks so much, Al. I'm delighted to be here. Well, uh, when we recorded the Herodotus uh, podcast, uh, I knew that I wanted to do two of these. And you have a, it's a very exciting book. Uh, back in episode 35, I think it was, we talked with uh, Barry Strauss about Thucydides, 40, episode 45. Um, and uh, we, uh, in, in a sense, when we're talking about the Peloponnesian War, we end up talking about Thucydides a lot. But your interpretation of the war is very interesting because you make it a lot, as I suggested, you suggest it has an earlier, in a way, an earlier start point and a later end point. Is that right? Am I... Uh, yes, yes, I would say I would say that. Sure. So, what's the standard account? What's the general? What's the general received view of the war? And then, how do you differ from that? Okay. Well, I'll try to do this uh, very briefly. It was Sparta that had declared war on Athens, uh, but many Spartans were very nervous about getting into the war, and numerous embassies were sent to Athens to try to come to some kind of accommodation. And after this had been going on for several months, Sparta's ally Thebes, north of Athens, became impatient, and the Thebans decided to get things off the ground by a sneak nighttime raid on one of Athens' allies, Plataea. This attack uh, jump-started the war. Now the Spartans had to get going. And this war was going to be very long for many reasons, uh, one of them being that Sparta was a land power and Athens was a sea power. And they did a lot of dancing around each other rather than going head to head uh, b because the infantry of Sparta's Peloponnesian League was so formidable. The Athenians' leading statesman Pericles devised a really extraordinary strategy. The Athenians would harass the Peloponnesians' territory with their navy and simply decline to participate in land battle. <laughs> Instead, the, the, the farmers in Athens' territory, Attica it was called, the farmers of Attica abandoned their land 
and they huddled with the city dwellers inside the strong walls that linked Athens to its port, Piraeus, and this made the city, in effect, an island. And food and other necessary goods could just be brought in by ship from Athens' large naval empire. Well, Pericles calculated that the Spartans would get tired of ravaging the land when nobody came out to fight, and they would sue for peace. But, of course, the Spartans figured that the Athenians would grow restive, cooped up in the overcrowded city, and would be unable to tolerate the frustration when they saw their land being ravaged, and they would sue for peace. Yeah, nice thinking, but uh, thinking does not always correspond to reality. And as things worked out, both the Athenians and the Spartans were wrong in their calculations. That's what war is like. Uh, calculations are often wrong. Thucydides reported that the Athenians said to the Spartans on the eve of the war, which way it will go is a stab in the dark. And Pericles died very soon after the war began, and the frustrated Athenians abandoned his strategy. They detached some territory from Sparta, but they suffered a serious defeat in a land battle north of Athens at a place called Delium. They lost about 1,200 men there. One of the men who fought there and did not die was the philosopher Socrates. He was fighting in the infantry there. An important development in northeastern Greece had a profound effect on our understanding of the war, because when some of the towns up there requested help from Sparta, the Spartans dispatched a very dynamic and eloquent commander by the name of Brasidas. And once he was in the north, Brasidas persuaded a number of cities, using his eloquence, to revolt from Athens. And he also brought the key Athenian stronghold of Amphipolis over to the Spartan side, in the space of only one night. And the Athenians were so distraught at this loss that they impeached one of their generals who had managed to be offshore when the disaster occurred. Of course, this was the historian Thucydides who was serving as a general in the war. Well, we don't know if he was exiled or sentenced to death in absentia, but he was certainly forced to leave Athens. This cut him off from hearing speeches delivered in the assembly and picking up the latest scuttlebutt in town, but he also had more leisure time, and he must have been more trusted, I would guess, by foreigners now that he was obviously on the outs with the home government. He had the opportunity to travel extensively and speak with a lot of non-Athenian sources. He, he may even have spoken with Brasidas himself. He seems in his writing to know an awful lot about what Brasidas was thinking. Maybe he heard that from Brasidas. Yeah. Well, two years after this, another battle took place in Amphipolis, and Brasidas was killed. Only seven Spartans died in that battle. Hundreds of Athenians died. Only seven Spartans died, and he was one of them. And at the same battle, the chief Athenian hawk, Cleon, was also killed. And with their deaths, the two sides made peace in an arrangement that was named for the Athenian who led the negotiating team, the general Nicias. During the years after the Peace of Nicias, tensions continued. The Athenians were persuaded by their Sicilian allies to send a huge fleet to Sicily, which was an important source of grain. And, and what year is this by now? When's, when's, um, when's the four, peace begin? We're, we're in 415 okay. now. Right. Um, the, the, the Peace of Nicias was in 421, okay. and we're, we're now up to 415. And the Athenians send this enormous uh, expedition to Sicily, which turns into a disaster. 
And it wasn't clear that they should have gone. The Spartans weren't really interested in getting hold of Sicily. And tens of thousands of men died, and hundreds of ships were lost, provoking major rebellions in the Athenian Empire. And the Spartans at this point were inspired to build a navy, something they really should have done long before. It's amazing that they managed to win the war since they delayed so much in building a navy. And there were a bunch of naval battles, and sometimes the Spartans won, sometimes the Athenians won. And for several years, the Persians tried to play each side against the other, hoping to wear down all of Greece. But in 407, the Spartan admiral Lysander made a friend of the young per Persian prince Cyrus. And the infusion of money that he received from Cyrus enabled him to entice sailors to switch sides and fight for Sparta. Lysander was a brilliant admiral, and in 405, he bottled the Athenians up in the Straits of the Hellespont and captured almost the entire navy of 180 ships. The whole navy should never have been in the same place at the same time, but the Athenians were exhausted and demoralized. Well, with this, the Athenians were cut off from their chief grain supply in the Black Sea, and, of course, had lost their navy, and that was it for Athens. The war was over for then. But, in fact, one of the Athenian admirals there escaped, and he became an ally of the Persians. And in time, he and his Persian co-commander won a stunning victory against Sparta about 10 years later. And uh, th this really was an enormously important development in Greece. At the same time, there was a war going on called the Corinthian War because a lot of the fighting happened near Corinth. There was a war going on in mainland Greece. And the Spartans were successful in that war. But the Spartans were great at winning the war and losing the peace. Hmm. Immediately after this, they began beating up on their allies, which was the height of foolishness. But they were led by an extremely aggressive king, Agesilaus. Um, you, you know the saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything mm -hmm. looks like a nail. Well, what Agesilaus had was an army, and everything looked to him like a war. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he went after absolutely everybody. He had also alienated the king of Persia by campaigning in Persian territory. So the, the Spartans behaved in an enormously alienating way throughout the uh, 4th century, and eventually they were knocked out, not by Athens, as one might have expected, but by Thebes, north of Athens, uh, which had become enormously powerful under the guidance of a very smart leader, Epaminondas, and his close associate, Pelopidas, who was more of a military guy, and uh, they finally defeated the Spartans quite decisively at the Battle of Leuctra in, in 371, and that was really it for Sparta. So I think that this conflict went on for a very long time, that the Spartan victory, so-called, and it was unquestionably a, a victory. It was a great victory. I mean, they captured the whole Athenian fleet. That this, this Spartan victory uh, didn't really solve anything because the Spartans behaved so badly towards friend and foe alike afterwards that they brought down a lot of trouble on their own heads. So, so rather than um, uh, from 431 to 405, with a six-year peace in the middle, right. we've, we've got a conflict. And you would actually start, there was a previous war between Athens yeah, There and was a previous the, war, yes. And but, it's very difficult to say uh, whether, I mean, Thucydides made them different wars. It's, it's mm -hmm. very difficult to say how likely 
it was that the conflict would continue after the peace that ended that first war, the so-called 30 years peace in 446. Um, it, it's very hard to tell. The, the, the terms of the peace were pretty reasonable, but there, there, was, uh, there was a clause for arbitration by a neutral power. The problem was that there were hardly any neutral powers, and none of them enormously powerful. So that was going to be a problem with 30 years peace. Whether I would tack that first war onto this second one, I'm, I'm not really sure. Speaking of, of neutral powers, um, in say 430, 431, how many different cities and states are there in Greece? I mean, wow. one hears right. varying estimates because it's, <laughs> right. it's a no. large number. Yeah, one, one hears estimates between 1,000 and 1,500. But uh, let's face it, who cares whether it was 1,000 or 1,500? Yeah. It wasn't one. You know. And, and that, that's the main thing. I mean, like, like Greece, uh, like Italy, excuse me, Greece didn't become a country until the 19th century. Um, and and some, some of these states were very far from others. Uh, some were as far west as Spain. Mm -hmm. Many were as far east as Turkey. And I, just don't, I don't just mean the west coast of Turkey. I mean you know, the inland mm -hmm. there. They could be found as, as far south as uh, Libya, and, as far yeah. north as Ukraine, where I have ancestors. Most of these had governments uh, somewhere on the spectrum between democracy and oligarchy. But Athens and Sparta were both different. Athens was an out-and-out -out radical democracy, and Sparta had a sort of mixed constitution headed by a monarchy. But of all things, they had two kings who served <laughs> concurrently. Uh, this was apparently to solve some quarrel between two ancient royal families. They both won. And uh, most Greek states were, were made up of farmers who served in the militia when circumstances called for it. But the Spartans, they outsourced all food production to a huge class of state-owned slaves called helots. Now, and there I, were several helots for every Spartan citizen. So are, are helots, um, are they ethnically different than Spartans? Um, yes, but we don't know as much about this as we would like. We don't even know why they're called helots. There are a couple of different theories about that. Uh, Greeks did prefer to have slaves who were ethnically different, ideally not Greek. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the, the Helots may have been ethnically different from the Spartans, but they, they were certainly Greeks. And there were several of them for every Spartan citizen. The Spartans were also famously devoted to eugenics. They, mm -hmm. they killed any newborn boy who didn't seem cut out to be a successful soldier. And interestingly, unlike in Athens, where well-bred females were expected to stay not only indoors, but ideally in their own part of the house. Spartan girls exercised outdoors to see to it that they would become robust childbearers of strapping sons. Mm -hmm. Well, these strapping sons were put in military academy from childhood, and Spartan education in that academy did not consist of music and poetry the way it did in the rest of Greece. Oh, no. Spartan education was made up of athletics and endurance tests. Kids in military academy went barefoot. They slept on mats they had made themselves by pulling up rushes from the bed of the nearby river, the Eurotus. And the Eurotus is very cold. <laughs> Just pulling up those rushes was an endurance test. How much reading, writing they had is a major source of disagreement. A number of Spartans were obviously literate, 
but how many were literate? Tremendous disagreement there. Mm-hmm. Well, things were very different in, in Athens. Okay, Athenian democracy was a very interesting system. There were certainly high officials in Athens. The highest was the board of 10 generals. Greeks were very suspicious, though, of too much power at the top. Witness those two kings in Sparta. Rather than have a president or a prime minister, the Athenians granted the greatest prestige not to an individual, but to a board of 10. And to keep these 10 in line, they elected them to one-year terms only, although they, they could be reelected if they did well. And they also held regular votes of confidence throughout the year at which any of these men could be dismissed. And at the end of their terms, they were subjected to a scrutiny of their conduct. Within 30 days of laying down their offices, all Athenian officials were required to submit their records for audit. And any citizen who wanted to could lodge a grievance of a non-financial nature. Only when this scrutiny and, you know, of course, any prosecutions arising from it, only when all this had been completed was a man allowed to set out on a trip to transfer his property, or even to make an offering to a god. Mm -hmm. That's how strict the Athenians were about accountability. In the democracy of Athens, power really did reside with the people. Public officials were servants of the state, not masters. Decisions really were made in the assembly of adult male citizens, not by individual officials and not even by boards of officials. So the, how many are, how many adult male citizens are there gathering together to vote on a, an issue? That's a great question, and there's certainly a lot of disagreement about that. There were probably a total of maybe 40,000 of such adult male citizens in Athens, but they didn't all meet at the same time. There wouldn't have even been room. They, they met on a hill called the Hill of the Pnyx, and... Um, Certainly, there were several thousand at a time. If the meeting was about something crucial like war and peace, um, a lot of people would come in from the countryside mm-hmm. of Attica. Um, if it wasn't so crucial, obviously fewer people would. So how close you lived to the Hill of the Pnyx did have a lot of effect on how often you turned up at the assembly meetings, which were very raucous. There was a lot of heckling and there was a lot of shouting and there was an enormous amount of participation. Whereas in Sparta, the Spartans did have an assembly, but uh, it, it did not debate, which is a very different business. Mm-hmm. So there, um, we can uh, an estimated forty thousand uh, male uh, adult male citizens in Athens, uh, which is a tremendous uh, resource uh, right. for the, for them. Uh, how many, uh, since warriors are the only things that really matter to Sparta, about how many warriors are there in the army? I think there's, what, eight to 14,000 at various in, times? In, in Athens, you mean? In, in Sparta. Oh, in Sparta. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I, uh, a, I've, number, a number does not come to my yeah, mind. I, I think I've, I've recall a number of something like something like 8,000 at the beginning of the war with Thebes or something. But that, oh, that's long oh, wait after. a minute. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Yeah. Yes. You're thinking of... Uh, Spartiates. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. The number of Spartiates, yes. It was said at the time of the Persian Wars. Yeah. It was said at the time of the Persian Wars by Herodotus to be about 8,000. Yeah. And the Spartans had a terrible population problem because they did 
they, they were very strict about anyone who was not a member of this Spartiate class being added to it. Uh, they, and in, it wasn't until the third century when a king named Cleomenes made some major reforms that the Spartan population was really brought up to a good strength. The Spartan population dropped and dropped and dropped throughout the 5th century, partly because of the Peloponnesian War, partly because of a major earthquake in 464. And we have to remember that the code of the Spartans really was embodied in that famous saying reported by Plutarch of a Spartan mother who said to her son when he went off to war, when she gave him his shield, she said, come back with this or on it, because Spartans were buried on their shields, which mm -hmm. were you know, concave. Um, the Spartans were not ever supposed to surrender. And this meant that if you were in battle, you just fought until you died. Uh, and this was not good for the Spartan population, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, or or the continuing of military knowledge and uh, and uh, know-how uh, and so on. Exactly. Yeah, so the same problem with the Imperial Japanese Army in, say, 1943. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, uh, when uh, when self-annihilation is sort of on the, on the cards at the end of the battle, well, you know. Yep. Um, so, it, it, uh, thinking through your book, it was it's curious to me in, in many ways that they actually that Sparta and Athens uh, did come to blows, um, that they did uh, come in conflict. Their interests are just so different. Um, it doesn't seem to me inevitable, uh, far from this idea of the Thucydides trap that one hears about these days. Uh, when you think about the, the very different interests that they have, it's kind of maybe it should be surprising that they came to a quarrel. Right. Um, it's, it's both very surprising and not surprising at all simultaneously. Right. Greeks were tremendously sensitive to questions of honor. This did not end um, at the end of the Homeric era. <laughs> we, we know from the uh, Iliad and the whole plot of the Iliad hanging on the way Achilles withdraws from the fighting because he has been insulted by the commander-in-chief Agamemnon. And he doesn't say, oh, well, of course, I owe it to my fellow Greeks to fight, even if the commander-in-chief has spoken unkindly to me. Uh, he takes the position that his honor has been slighted. And the idea of, of honor remained very much alive over the centuries in Greece. There's a wonderful book on the first 10 years of the Peloponnesian War by Ted Lendon, um, J.E. Lendon, called Song of Wrath in which he very much underlines the large role played by slights to honor in the fighting of the Peloponnesian War, both in its beginning and its in its continuation throughout its first uh, decade. Uh, it was tremendously important. Greeks were easily slighted. And we also have a case here of entangling alliances. Mm. The Spartans had been, even before the Athenians League had been uh, established. The Spartans had been the head of an organization called the Peloponnesian League. It, it has been joked that it was neither Peloponnesian nor a league, um, but uh, although that, there were that was some, inevitable. <laughs> that was inevitable, you betcha. But there, even though there were some states who that belonged to it uh, outside the Peloponnesus, most notably uh, the state of Thebes, which was the head of the Boeotian League, um, certainly, uh, certainly it was uh, largely Peloponnesian, and it, it was a league in the sense that all the states were tied to Sparta, but they were not really tied to one another. 
but they were tied to Sparta, and Sparta did depend on them for protection in the event of a Hela rebellion. Mm-hmm. Spartan was, was much of Spartan policy can be, foreign policy, but certainly domestic policy, can be understood in terms of the existence of the Helots. I mean, when you are outnumbered, oh, probably at some times as much as 10 to 1, and then less during the, uh, less during the course of the 5th century when more and more Spartiates were killed in battle, although some Helots fought and some of them were killed, but it was mostly Spartiates certainly who fought and uh, were killed. But they established the whole notion of the armed camp, of sending children to military academy and keeping them there until quite an advanced adult age. Um, this was because of fear of the Helots and their need to please their allies in the Peloponnesian League uh, was also very much motivated by fear of the Helots. So although the Athenians and Spartans did not tend to get in one another's way directly, the Athenians very much got in the way of members of the Peloponnesian League. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I personally think that, that Corinth, which was sort of the naval arm of the Peloponnesian League, played a very large role in the outbreak of the war. Um, Donald Kagan, the world expert on the Peloponnesian War, who was my dissertation director, um, often insisted adamantly that this was not a case of the Corinthian tail wagging the Spartan dog, but I'm not sure that's true. You've, you've changed your mind, or maybe you never changed your mind. I, 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 think he, I think he may have said it because I was arguing for Corinth, but <laughs> perhaps not, because certainly plenty of people argue for, for Corinth, but I'm, I'm not sure I ever um, believed that it was not such a case, and mm-hmm. I, th- I think I was always inclined to believe that Corinth played an enormous role. So the Corinthian naval power conflicting with the Athenian naval power and trade routes and all the and allies and all the rest sure. of that. Yeah. Um, the uh, when we talk about Pericles, I, I think uh, Americans immediately think, oh, the leader of Athens, he must be like president. Of but, course. But all these people that we're talking about, really, I, I, if you're a leader of Athens, it means that you're just the best speaker. I mean, just very well put. Um, Speech was enormously important in Athens. Uh, This um, both accounted for and was intensified by the presence of the itinerant intellectuals in Athens known as the sophists. Um, they, they were very interesting people. They've gotten a very bad rap from history because Plato couldn't stand them. Uh, but they, they were really very much like teachers of today, very much like me. They, yeah. they teach students to question authority. Um, they, they teach students to uh, make good arguments and to do what their enemies called making the worst cause appear the better. Uh, and they, they were relativists. Uh, Protagoras, one of the most famous, was the man who said, man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, of things that are not that they are not. Uh, and the, the sophists were engaged in teaching young men to make good speeches in the assembly. Uh, Athenian education was really very literary. Uh, you listen to po- Homer and other poets, you learn to recite Homer and other poets. But, you know, quoting a nice passage from Homer was not necessarily going to get you what you wanted in the assembly. You needed to learn some serious rhetoric. So good speakers 
uh, could become extremely powerful in Athens. And Pericles was an extraordinarily eloquent man, and he was reelected to the generalship about 30 times, hmm. which is you know, more than anyone else in the 5th century, and that was quite remarkable. And he, he owed his prestige to uh, his eloquence and his foresight, and Thucydides, who did not like Athenian democracy at all, nonetheless was a very big admirer of Pericles. So what is Pericles' argument uh, to the Athenians? Um, his his power, again, comes not from his generalship, um, no. but from his persuasiveness. Right. Um, what does he persuade the Athenians to do by 431? Right. Well, he persuades them not to give in to any of the demands that the Spartans are making in those embassies. Now, of course, before that, he has also persuaded them to do things like strengthen their empire and expand their empire and build things like the Parthenon. Um, he, he has you know, persuaded them that it's appropriate to use the tribute money from their so-called allies, who are really their subjects, uh, to use this tribute money to beautify the Acropolis with buildings like the uh, Parthenon, when there was objection to this, he would say, well, all right, just put my name on it. And people said, no, no, that's all right. That's all right. Here, we'll, we'll pay. We'll pay. Um, so he, he persuaded them that empire was good, that they were entitled to the uh, fruits of empire. There was a lot of objection to the empire, uh, mostly, of course, outside Athens, but a little bit in Athens, too. And, you know, it reminds me of the old story about the man who was found salting his sidewalk. And someone says to him, why are you salting the sidewalk? And he said, well, to keep, to keep the alligators away. And they said, I, I don't see any alligators. And the man, of course, said, precisely. Uh, Pericles uh, felt that, that the uh, empire was salting the sidewalk to keep the Persians away. And when people said, yeah, but 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 Kipon really defeated the Persians at the Battle of the Eurymedon. I mean, do we really have to worry about the Persians? And he said, well, you know, see, Kipon was successful. Uh, we, we have to uh, keep our eyes open here, and we have this nice empire, and now you don't see the Persians making trouble anymore. So he supported the empire. Mm -hmm. And right before the opening of the war, he persuaded the Athenians that it was not a good idea to make any concessions to the Spartans. The, the concessions the Spartans were asked were some of them totally unreasonable, like lay down the empire, mm -hmm. some of them perfectly reasonable, like get rid of this decree you have passed, this embargo you have placed on your neighbor Megara, which is our ally, and it's ruining their trade. Um, and that was really not an unreasonable request. But Pericles felt that you give in on one thing and you're giving in on everything and you're giving the Spartans the idea that they can dictate to you. So I... I I think Don Kagan is is the principal exponent of um, of the idea that that Pericles had a strategy. Uh, and reading your book, I wonder did per do you did Pericles really have a strategy? I, I think he did. Yes, and it's it's difficult to know. I mean, because it's a very good question that you ask. It's difficult to know because he died so soon mm -hmm. after the war began. Um, and how he would have handled various provocations is really impossible to be certain. Uh, but I, I think he, he did have a strategy, and I think the, the strategy of refusing uh, to fight was was probably a, a very promising one. Um, but it was contingent on the Spartans getting discouraged faster than they did. So it could be argued that maybe it wasn't so promising. But he, the um, certainly the great. 
strategic weakness of the Spartans, um, as as you've already pointed out, it's bound up in their in their way of life. It's uh, is, yes. is the the weakness of being a slave society, um, and uh, slave societies have a certain power, um, just like the Spartans. The Confederates had the highest uh, male participation, I think, in any mar- modern war. Um, but just like the Spartans, um, the Confederacy was always weak because it was so dependent upon that slave labor. Um, that, that's true, but it was also a problem that the Spartans, I think, were a little overconfident, and their king, Archidamus, who died also at the very beginning of the war, a little bit after Pericles, um, had warned them that they should uh, postpone going to war if, uh, with Athens. I think partly he meant he didn't want them ever to go to war with Athens, but he couched it in terms of, what, why don't you put this off a little? Because he, he really knew that they needed a navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until the Spartans finally got around to building a navy uh, that they were able to win the war. So uh, the the absence of a navy does have to do with the presence of the Helot slaves because the Spartans were timid about going too far from home, and having a navy means you are uh, committed yeah. to go very far from home. Yeah, That's it, a reason to have a navy. And also one uh, famous, I don't know if this... Um, one, one long-standing interpretation is that navies also are sort of essentially democratic. Um, right. um, well, at least in Athens they are, uh, because certainly. oarsmen are citizens. That's right. um, it's a difficult. Well, Carthage certainly does not use citizens <laughs> no. as oarsmen, um, no. and I, I don't suppose there's any reason why Sparta had to either. I, maybe they used helots. As, um, well, um, they, they, no, they did have the Spartans uh, oarsmen were normally um, members of the citizen members of the Peloponnesian League. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, um, and th- there were some helots certainly in in battle. Uh, Brasidas, when he was in the north, uh, ruining Thucydides' career, uh, mm-hmm. he had he had some helots with him, uh, but. The, the Spartans were, were hesitant about this. We we don't know anywhere as near as much as we would like about mm-hmm. the use of slaves in battle anywhere uh, in Greece because the historians were very squeamish about admitting this blurring of the lines between citizen and slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they did not like to admit that too many slaves participated in battle because uh, they were slavish, and how could they do that? And that was a citizen thing. There were, for example, slaves in the Persian Wars, and you can tell if you read Herodotus closely, there were obviously slaves there, but it's not something that the Athenians uh, talked about, and it's not something that people from other states talked about. They did not like to think that slaves could be valorous in warfare, because if that was true, then why were they slaves? Mm-hmm. We, you uh, referred to Pericles dying early in the war, and he died uh, one of the many victims of, of a plague, a mysterious and uh, truly, as you present it, a truly describe it in, a, in really gut-wrenching detail, a really awful plague. Uh, what, what, what was it? Uh, that's impossible to answer. Uh, but describe that plague a little bit. Right. Well, actually, it may be possible to answer someday, but so far. Yeah. I mean, Robert Littman at the University of Hawaii you know, published a very persuasive uh, article about the plague, but then it was it was met with some objections. So we, we're, we're not really sure uh, about the, the plague. Thucydides was very eager 
to report the details of the plague so that it would be recognized if it should occur again. But mm -hmm. I've always felt quite bad for him in this respect because despite his exhaustive efforts to chronicle the symptoms of the disease and the course it tended to take, there has never been a consensus either among physicians or among historians as to what the plague actually was. There, there are a lot of theories, yeah. typhus, toxic shock, tularemia, smallpox, measles, Ebola even, scarlet huh. fever, which I've had twice, yeah. viral hemorrhagic fever, dengue fever, which my father had in the Pacific during World War II, lost all his teeth and one of his ears. Well, not the whole ear, but the hearing. Um, acute influenza, maybe, or mm -hmm. it could be a combination of it. I mean, they just, they just don't know. Right. Um, but right now, it, it does look like it was typhoid fever. But uh, I, I, I'm not sure. An opinion could shift any time. But whatever it was, have, it was just devastating. Have any archaeologists ever recovered uh, bodies that they can date to that? Um, from um, yeah, well, yeah, there are there are some, and it's I think based on material in the teeth mm -hmm. of some of these bodies that. Um, people, including Robert Littman, have, have drawn their conclusions. But, but it's not decisive because there are some other reasons to believe that the Athenians might have had this kind of stuff in their teeth. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's still problematic. But, but whatever it was, it was just de devastating. It, it caused not only indescribable misery while it ran its course, it, it drastically reduced the number of available fighting men. Among the infantry, uh, over 4,000 died. I think it was 4,400, 300 of, of the cavalry. And the city's population was reduced by about a third, if you can imagine that. Um, and Thucydides was, was very eager to record all the symptoms, which were very depressing to read about. And pe people felt so hot that they couldn't even bear the weight of the thinnest clothing, and they wanted to throw themselves into cold water. And in mm -hmm. fact, a lot of them did jump in, into wells. Uh, survivors often wound up missing genitals, fingers, toes, sometimes even eyes, and sometimes memories. A lot of people suffered from amnesia. And, you know, understandably, the trauma was so great that those who were left alive simply couldn't get their heads around it. I mean, so many people suddenly gone, mothers, fathers, children's best friends, uh, it, it, bodies were lying around unburied. Mm -hmm. And this was in a society in which proper burial was so important that Sophocles, some years before that, had written a play based on that, Antigone, in, in which the title character faces execution rather than leaving her brother unburied. I, I was just reading last night Sophocles' play, Ajax, in which the Greek commanders are so angry at Ajax that they forbid his half-brother to bury him, and they have a big debate about that. And in the end, he, he does get buried. But it was a tremendously important thing in Greece to have proper burial and not have your soul just wandering around in the underworld. So having these bodies just lying around unburied, I mean, some people just took the bodies of their relatives and threw them on the funeral pyres of other families. Hmm. Hmm. Which is another act of impiety. Uh, an act of considerable uh, impiety, 
Yes, um, among the finds, uh, when archaeologists, well, not archaeologists, when when um, construction workers were preparing <laughs> Athens for the 2004 Olympics, they turned up this fascinating city beneath the city, and among the finds was a mass grave dating to the age of the plague with 150 skeletons just lying helter-skelter every which way. And, and of course, the social consequences were enormous. Thucydides, who caught the plague but survived, said that it introduced a general lawlessness in the city. Um, he wrote, and I'm going to read now from, mm -hmm. if I can find it here, from the translation of my friend Walter Blanco, who was, I think, a marvelous translator who did the Norton Critical Edition of Thucydides. Um, uh, here, fear of the gods, Thucydides wrote, the laws of man, no one held back, concluding that as to the gods, it made no difference whether you worshipped or not, since they saw that all alike were dying. And as to breaking the law, no one expected to live long enough to go to court and pay his penalty. <laughs> one of the consequences is Pericles' death and the lack of a presiding genius in the Athenian assembly. Is that, would that be right? I mean, there's absolutely. A, a, yes. After this, there are a variety of personalities that, uh, from, from this point on, what year is this? 425? Um, no, no, no. Um, 420, I think nine. Oh, 429. Wow. So up until the, for another 24 years, um, there is no one person that can, there's no Themistocles, there's no Pericles. Exactly. There's no, there's no um, Aristides. There's no sort of person that can really um, uh, captivate his, his fellow citizens. Well, Cleon did captivate a lot of fellow <laughs> citizens. Whether we were happy about that yeah. is, is another well, Talk about story. Cleon. Oh, boy. Cleon, Cleon. Um, poor Cleon has, has come before the tribunal of history at an enormous disadvantage because Aristophanes hated him. He wrote an entire <laughs> play, The Knights, making fun of Cleon and accusing him of taking bribes, which is possibly not true, although I don't have much use for Cleon, but I'm not at all sure he took bribes. And Thucydides uh, hated him. And it's it's been suspected that it was Cleon who was behind Thucydides' exile or being uh, condemned to death or whatever it was that happened. And we, we don't really know about that. Um, but certainly Thucydides couldn't stand him. So uh, we have the fact that neither of the main sources for the first 10 years of the Peloponnesian War could stand the guy. Um, and he uh, he first appears in Thucydides' history being described by Thucydides as the most beatatos, the most violent um, of the citizens. Uh, he spoke brashly and he waved his hands all around, which was considered very déclassé. And, and class was very important to the hmm. Athenians. Cleon was an affluent man. He was the head of a tannery. But this was a new breed of, of politician. There is a whole book written about this called The New Politicians of Fifth Century Athens by Robert Connor. Um, the, the new politicians didn't come from aristocratic families as Pericles had. They were affluent, but they made their money in business. And the Athenians had this crazy idea that the only way you should have wealth was if it was 
right there when you were born. <laughs> um, you shouldn't actually make any money. That was so tacky. Mm. Um, you should just, you know, have money, and you should have it through your family's land. Um, but Cleon was not of this stripe. He had made money in this uh, tannery, and he appears in Thucydides when the city of Mytilene on the island of Lesbos, the bottom of Litzvos, right off the coast of Turkey, uh, the city of Mytilene and several other cities on that island have rebelled against the Athenian Empire. And um, they've finally surrendered, and Cleon wants every one of the men put to death, and all the women and children enslaved. And uh, this hadn't happened in the war yet. It was going to happen later on quite a bit, but it hadn't happened yet. And there was a debate in the Athenian assembly in which Cleon says really alarming things like, you know, bad laws that stay the same are better than good laws that change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sounds like quite the intellectual thug. And um, he, he takes the position that uh, democracy just doesn't know how to conduct itself, and you know the Athenians are very lucky to have him there to advise them. And he does advise them to kill everyone. And another fellow, who's named Diodotus, and we sure don't know who he was. We've heard nothing about him in any other text. Diodotus makes the first argument that I know of that deterrence doesn't work. Cleon says, we got to kill all these guys to deter future rebellions. And Diodotus says, you know, I would, would certainly never argue for mercy. You know, heaven forbid, I would never argue for mercy. I'm just saying it's not in our interest because deterrence doesn't work when people undertake daring enterprises. They don't do it in the expectation of getting caught. They do it in the expectation of getting away with it. Mm. And the Athenian assembly is very divided, but they, they finally... Uh, vote to execute only the ringleaders. Uh, there seems to have been a very large number of ringleaders, considering the small population of the average Greek city. But at least they, they did not they did not execute everybody. And Thucydides describes with great drama the way the first ship sent with the news that everyone is to be executed. Uh, the, the herald has made the announcement: you are all going to die, and. The general there, Pekis, is just about to carry out the sentence when, breathlessly, the second ship arrives and says, no, no, it's a mistake. Um, huh. We're only killing a lot of you, not, not all of yeah, you. Yeah, like 500 um, or something like that. But uh, And the women and children will get sell, sold into slavery. Yeah, um, yeah, yes. Yeah. But this is a foretaste of, of things to come, the, of, of this total war that will, by 405, this, is, this becomes a... I don't know, uh, a yearly occurrence, or a le it, it happens. Um, yeah, it ha well, Victor Hansen, in his wonderful book on the Peloponnesian War, um, points out that at the beginning it was just a war, but by the end the two sides just loathed each other. Right. And so things got more and more violent, and as Thucydides enjoys writing about, there were many civil wars, mm -hmm. more than before, because people expected that the Spartans would come in on the side of the oligarchs, and the Athenians would come in on the side of the Democrats. Uh, so it was, it was really a, a terribly brutal time. Nevertheless, uh, in the midst of this war, we tend, I tend to ignore the fact that there are six years of peace. Um, that there are. in a way the war was ended. It was over. That's uh, right. It had after ten years they were fought out. Um, right. They Absolutely. Had decided. Nah, no one's winning. We're not winning. Let's just call this off. So why 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 did that peace occur? And then we'll get to why it didn't last. 
Well, I, I think um, that I think that you pointed to some very good reasons why the peace occurred, and there was also the fact that both Cleon and Brasidas had been killed in 422 at this battle at Amphipolis, and that, that I think, was a, a major factor. Um, the, the Spartans didn't like this business of having to go as far away from home as Brasidas had. They didn't like this cult of personality that had grown up around Brasidas. They found that very mm. unspartan, and they, they felt that you know things were changing too fast them in I, the war. I guess and, I should point out that I mean the, uh, the 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 mixed republic of of Sparta, one not just one king but two, another king to a fa family right. to watch each other. Then we've got the assembly, we've got the ephors too, which I've never really understood. It's a very complex system. It is extremely complex. Yes, to watch ephors. everyone's watching everybody. Everyone's watching everybody. And they do not want a demagogue general, although they kind of get one with Lysander, but that's not a story. Oh, they sure do, yes. <laughs> um, but Brasidas, so Brasidas, good riddance to him, they probably think, um, and uh, now we can call off an end to this. Yeah, I think I think so. And the Athenians, um, I mean, uh, the the uh, the Athenians had, had also had problems. Um, and it wasn't only the, the deaths of Cleonobrasidus, whom Aristophanes had called the pestles who were grinding down <laughs> Greece's cities in the mortar of war. Um, uh, agriculture in Attica had been very severely disrupted, and with it, the trade between the city and the countryside. And Sparta had another problem, which was that Sparta had an age-old rival, Argos, nearby. And they had a 30-year truce with Argos about to expire. And it was really not to their interest to be heavily invested in a war at, at that time. In addition, a number of Spartan soldiers had been taken captive. And with population being so low, the Spartans really wanted to get them back. The, the problem was that the other key players on the diplomatic scene, places like Corinth, uh, Sparta's naval ally, Megara, Athens's neighbor to the west, and Thebes, uh, which was almost a neighbor of Athens to the north. Um, these had much less to gain from peace in general and nothing at all to gain from this particular peace. In fact, they refused to sign it, which was a very bad sign. Mm -hmm. And so this peace is then uh, a sort of a half peace because of that refusal of other allies um, to join in. Right. Okay. Um, now we have the figure of Alcibiades. Um, oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, just, you know, sooner, uh, who is, um, who is a, a real piece of work? Um, That's the best way to describe Alcibiades. Uh, yes, yes, he is. Um, so why don't you, uh, other than that, what, how else can we describe him? Well, Alcibiades, yes, the, the rakish, roguish Alcibiades. You know, as a rule, I, I don't like to accord too large a role in history to high-profile individuals, but sometimes a, a particular person does seem to bear an extraordinary share of the responsibility for the way things and turn out. And, and I think this was the case with Alcibiades. He was an Athenian aristocrat. His father had been killed in war when he was a toddler, and he went to live with Pericles. 
Um, and he was a real hellraiser, although rumor had it that his brother was worse. But uh, this was this was not uh, good for Pericles' mental health. Um, there's a story that Alcibiades came to Pericles once and wanted to chat, and Pericles said, "I, I can't, I can't talk to you now. I, I, I'm busy." Alcibiades said, "What you doing?" He said, "Well, I'm preparing to render my accounts to the Athenians because, as I said, after you had held a public office, there was an accounting of your records." And Alcibiades said, "Well." Well, wouldn't your time be better spent finding a way to avoid rendering the accounts to the Athenians? <laughs> That's the difference between Pericles and Alcibiades right there. So Alcibiades, there were endless stories about Alcibiades. It was said that he hit his teacher because he didn't have a copy of Homer. And when he wanted a cart to stop in the street, he would just lie down in front of it and it would have to stop instead of running him over. Um, he brought a quail into the... Uh, assembly one day, his pet bird, and he kept it under his cloak, but it, it escaped and it, it, it caused quite a, a stir. He, he had a dog with a very beautiful tail, and it was said that he had cut off the dog's tail. And when people were very angry about this and they asked why he had done it, he said, well, you know, if they're angry about this, maybe they'll focus just on this one thing and not on any other things I might do. And he certainly did a number of things to uh, make people angry and, and, to, and to foster the war. He was general for the first time in 420, and he had very little prospect of making a name for himself in a tranquil world. His future glory was contingent on the disintegration of the peace. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was certainly a, a problem. The peace wasn't formally broken until I think it was 414 when the Athenians helped some, uh, they answered an, an appeal that's involved landing soldiers in Spartan territory. And that, that was uh, a foolish thing to do because that was a technical violation of the peace. Uh, but the, the main thing that happened uh, during this period was that the Athenians and the Peloponnesians found themselves uh, fighting in, in Sicily. Uh, the, they had allies in Sicily, and their allies had come to them and asked them to intervene in a quarrel. And they were they were worried that the important Corinthian colony of Syracuse in Sicily, which is the largest city there, was going to take over all Sicily. They were worried eventually about it being of support to the Spartans. Um, it's it's not clear that. It was really in their interest to go to Sicily. The general Nicias, who had been the principal negotiator in the peace that bore his name, pointed out to them that they had, you know, survived a plague, they had survived a war, but they had to sort of re regroup and recoup some of their strength. And he was opposed, of course, by Alcibiades, who persuades them that uh, they should indeed send the expedition and that he should indeed be sent to lead it. And one of his arguments is that he has won many victories in the Olympics. Uh, and I, I often wonder how this played, because on the one hand, it was, it was great to have an Olympic victor in town. On the other hand, he won these victories with his, his horses. And of course, only rich people in, belong to the horsey set. And I'm not sure that all the poor Athenian citizens in the assembly were thinking, oh, well, I just, I just really love the idea of a guy having a lot of expensive horses. So I don't know about that. But he, he certainly did uh, encourage them to go to Sicily and to send him as one of the generals. Uh, but uh, 
this this didn't work out so well either for him or 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 for the Athenians. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was a massive disaster. I mean, it was uh, it, it was just a, a, a catastrophe. They lost um, tens of thousands of men. They lost hundreds of ships. It, it was a disaster. Yes. And in some and this the so the the uh, the war officially then restarts in four fourteen, but as our English cousins would say, they, they begin on the back foot. Uh, yes. They've lost hundred because of those hundreds of ships that are gone and those and those tens of thousands of men. Um, yes. There are thousands of men. Well, yeah, maybe twenty thousand men. Uh, so. Oh, I think more. More, yeah. Because remember, there were many allies. Yes. It wasn't allies and slaves. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, they had to draft slaves. So it, the second phase of the war, um, and when does Sparta finally um, put a fleet to sea? Because this this second phase is very much in the Aegean, in the Ionian. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, no. It, it is. It is. In fact. Uh, it is. In fact. Now, uh, because as um, as I I believe I used as a uh, chapter title in my book, the empire strikes back, mm-hmm. uh, smelling blood. Many of Athens' allies rebel, and Sparta has indeed built a fleet, and. There are battles, as you said, um, in in Ionia, off the coast of what is today Turkey, and and some of them actually in in Turkey. Uh, And uh, sometimes the Spartans win, sometimes the Athenians win, and things are pretty indecisive. But then we get, as you indicated earlier, we get Lysander. Okay, he was the chief admiral of the Spartan fleet, technically only for one year because it was a one-year term, but he stayed de facto in office after that as a so-called assistant. Um, He actually aspired to become king, but when he wasn't busy aspiring to become king, he was busy thinking of ways to defeat Athens. Uh, He had a certain amount of charm, and he certainly charmed the teenage Persian prince Cyrus, he persuaded Cyrus to grant him a major infusion of Persian gold with which to hire sailors away from Athens. And by the end of the war, the Athenians were exhausted. Let's say this is no, 406, 407, he, he linked up with Cyrus. Um, by this time, the Athenians were exhausted. Lysander is just getting started. And in 405, making good use of the subsidies he'd obtained from Cyrus, he established a base at the city of Lampsacus in the Hellespont. And in August, the Athenians stationed their fleet some two miles across the narrow channel, a place called Egos Padmai, which means Goats Rivers. Hmm. And after the fleets had been in these positions for five days, the Athenian crews had gone ashore to gather provisions, and Lysander gave the signal for attack. And the Spartans captured 171 ships out of the Athenians' 180, and their men swarmed over the camp, killing and capturing as many as possible. Only a handful of Athenian ships escaped, one of them commanded by Conan, the, one of the admirals there, and remembering the fates of some earlier unsuccessful commanders, Conan took refuge in Cyprus and didn't return to Athens until he had engineered a victory over the Spartans at Cnidus 
off the southwest coast of Turkey in 394, 10 years after the end <laughs> of the war. Smart um, man. Very, very smart man. And his escape was just priceless for Athens since he um, became an ally of the Persian king, whom the Spartans had been annoying, in a, in a very successful contest with with Sparta. Which, I mean, so by by Aegospotomy, the by that final battle, um, Lysander has the Athenians fighting the war that precisely the war that Pericles wished them to avoid. Yes, uh, uh, we should explain the importance uh, that this war in uh, in the Ionian um, in the Aegean is to preserve Athenian allies and thereby uh, preserve their tribute, right? Preserve their uh, their funding. So it's all about but, it's all about funding and logistics. Well, it's it's about funding and grain. Yeah, Attica grain. was very grain poor, and this was one reason they had gone to Sicily. Sicily was a fabulous source of grain. It later became the, known as the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And in the Black Sea, that was where the Athenians got the bulk of their grain. So they had to protect the Black Sea grain supply. And it was because... They, not only because they had lost their fleet that they had to surrender to Sparta, but because they lost their access to grain. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, Sparta had their hands around their throat. Uh, yep. They could not eat. Um, it's a hard for, I mean, I think it's modern audiences are often really shocked to find out that uh, sort of this international trade was so important uh, even in, in 410 and 407. A absolutely. That these fields of Crimea and the Ukraine and all the rest of it, that those were, that, that yep. kept, they kept Greece alive, um, kept, yep, the sure kept the city populations alive. So uh, now uh, Sparta has won, uh, Lysander's fleet sails into the Piraeus. And they impose a, um, they have an occupying army there, and they impose a government, an oligarchic government, which uh, of the of the thirty tyrants. Yep. Um, what do those? Who are those guys? And what do they do? Right. Well, when the Spartans have the walls that had protected Athens throughout the war, when the Spartans have the walls torn down. Um, by this time, the history of Thucydides has broken off. Thucydides is still alive, and even though he said he had written up the war year by year as it happened, he you know, got behind, and so he was really only up to 410, and at that point, the uh, manuscript breaks off. So we now have the Athenian Xenophon, who is a very interesting person, but not as analytic a historian as Thucydides, but he, he writes very colorfully, and he says that when the walls came down, people were convinced that they were witnessing the beginning of freedom for Greece because of the end of the Athenian Empire. Well, it would soon become apparent that nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, Lysander bore Athens' particular ill will, and the Athenians would soon find themselves under the thumb of a singularly brutal oligarchy. As you said, the men known as the 30 Tyrants. They didn't call themselves the no, 30 Tyrants, but we do. Um, they were a board of 30 pro-Spartan Athenians who favored an oligarchic government. They were not Spartans. They were, they were Athenian oligarchs. And there was also going to be a council of 500, but it would serve only to ratify the acts of the 30. And order was going to be maintained by 300 mercenaries bearing whips. Uh, not surprisingly, the 30 promptly put an end to the popular courts, which were really the bedrock of the democracy. And realizing they were making themselves unpopular, they soon sent for a Spartan garrison 
um, and they needed money to pay for this because the Spartans didn't want to pay, but they, <laughs> they, did, they wouldn't have to pay themselves, so they needed money. And in addition to executing political opponents, they also executed a large number of people simply in order to confiscate their assets. And they killed about 1,500 people. And, you know, this is in Greece where states aren't that big, no. even Athens. And now Athens had come to resemble Sparta in a way that most Athenians found really chilling. The 30 seemed parallel to the Spartan Council of Elders, which had 28 men plus the two kings. The 300 mercenary whip-bearers paralleled the Spartan king's bodyguard of 300. And the 30 had only allowed 3,000 men to retain their citizen rights. And that seemed about the same number as the number of citizens in Sparta at that time. So this was really creepy. And predictably, resistance against the tyranny uh, gathered now, strength. Now, who were the 30? Um, there's a, certainly in Herodotus, and I guess it's suggested in Thucydides and Xenophon, um, Democrats in Athens always suspected aristocrats, Athenian aristocrats, uh, the large, the large farmers. Uh, they always expect, uh, suspected them of, of pro-Spartan sympathies. Was right. this accurate? Were these people these these sort of agrarian aristocrats who really had been Spartan lovers the entire time? Some of them, yes. Uh, certainly, uh, Plato's relative Critias, who was really the ringleader, um, was very pro-Spartan. He liked, you know, Spartan furniture, Spartan clothes, I mean, you, you name it, he liked everything mm -hmm. Spartan. And so that was certainly true of, of Critias. Th there were others who were more moderate, but they did not come always to a good end. Uh, Theramenes is the most memorable moderate among the 30. And he uh, is a mysterious character. We can't always tell if he's just a sensible middle-of-the-road kind of guy or whether he's just a time server. But he certainly came to a very bad end when he challenged Critias and uh, was executed. Uh, so there, there were different stripes of mm -hmm. politician among the 30, some more oligarchic than others. And in uh, and I would regard this interpretation as, as silly, but you, one hears it, that these that these uh, people like Plato had been um, uh, infected. This is, becomes a later argument. We'll get to that in a second. Infected by Socrates. Um, and that Socrates uh, himself and, and Plato, of course, as we can see, was really a sort of proto-authoritarian, totalitarian. Um, and they had incul he had inculcated those ideas in them. And that's where they got that. And look at the Republic and there you have it, QED. Right, and and look at Plato's uh, later dialogues, which are even more authoritarian, like the laws, which mm -hmm. outlaws uh, an enormous number of things, and uh, the statesman, which says if you find someone who's really gifted at governing, that person should just take everything over. Yes, no, absolutely. And I, I think this is very interesting because it raises a number of questions. One, of course, is how much of what we read in Plato's dialogues is Plato and yep. how much is Socrates. Um, it's and hard for me to believe that Socrates was authoritarian. It doesn't, doesn't jibe with what we, you know, what, how his personality comes across and with a number of things that he says. It's hard to believe this, and yet we have no real authority for what Socrates believed except for the dialogues of 
Plato. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, what, what are we to think? Socrates' uh, position with re reference to the 30 has been very much debated. Uh, he was sent by the 30 to arrest an Athenian citizen, a fellow named Leon from Salamis, where the Battle of Salamis against Persia, the great victory, had taken place. He was sent to arrest Leon, and he didn't. He, he refused. So some people say, well, well, look, you see, he, he opposed the 30. Mm -hmm. And then other people say, whoa, wait a minute. The 30 wouldn't have chosen someone who was opposed to them to go arrest someone. They must have trusted Socrates. So there's a major debate about what Socrates' position was in Athens at the time of the 30. Some people say that all the true Democrats left town in order to stage the counter-revolution. And what was Socrates doing in town if he wasn't you know, sympathetic to the oligarchs? So you know, this is a major question. And the idea that Socrates uh, infected people with anti-democratic thinking is... I don't think it is silly because I don't believe that Socrates was an anti-democrat. Uh, but when he asked people to question everything around them, obviously Athenians, well, one of the main things around them was democracy. Mm -hmm. And you know, when Socrates puts it in a certain way, it's it's easy to to see how people were persuaded. He uh, argues in his uh, wonderful speech, The Apology, which was certainly never given because it doesn't have the format of Athenian, an Athenian defense speech. Um, but in, in this speech, he, he says, or Plato said that he said, um, that when he heard from the Delphic Oracle that nobody in Greece was wiser than Socrates, he went around trying to prove it false by questioning people and finding someone who, yes, was wiser. And wouldn't you know, everyone turned out to be really dumb. And he goes to the poets, and he goes to the politicians, and he goes to the artisans, and he demonstrates that most people aren't all that smart, and his position was, well, you know, democracy is government by most people, and most people aren't that smart, so, you know, is this what you really want? And so he, he did, I think, feed in his teachings, a lot of anti-democratic feeling, even though I would not be comfortable arguing that he was himself anti-democratic. But when you, uh, when you encourage people to question things, you never know what will happen. And, and certainly um, with the counter-revolution <laughs> uh, and the, it, it, the, the, the forces that overthrow the 30, are uh, deeply suspicious of anything that might have brought an end to anything that might have brought an end to Athenian democracy, and they are going to purge it from the body politic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk briefly about the this Thrasybulus and the and the and the sort of the counter revolution. Right. Well, you know, the thirty uh, undid themselves by being as awful as they were. Uh, I, I, I really have often wondered what would have happened hmm. if the 30 had been more moderate. Uh, they, they were so immoderate that they even alienated the king of Sparta, Pausanias, who was, was not pleased with them. And of course, he was not pleased with anything that Lysander did, because Lysander was a major thorn in the side of the kings, the very uh, ambitious uh, Lysander. But the brutality of the 30, really unnecessary brutality, had created a, a very dangerous body of bitter 
exiles. Sparta, of course, had forbidden neighboring states to receive refugees from Athens, um, but the, the bloody conduct of the oligarchy had created a very large number of refugees and a lot of sympathy for the beleaguered Athenians. And not Thebes, not Megara, not Corinth, none of these was disposed to turn away Athenians who were fleeing from this brutal regime. And, and it was in Thebes that the Athenian exiles mounted their campaign under their leader, the democratic general Thrasybulus, who played, played a large role in the war. Um, under Thrasybulus, about 70 men gathered at a fortress on the border of Attica and Boeotia, the area around Thebes. And from, from there, you could see on a clear day uh, the Parthenon. And that must have been quite an experience for the very homesick Democrats. And, and soon their number had swelled to 700, and they, they had good armor. Uh, in part, this was due to the support of a resident alien, uh, Lysias, whose family came from Syracuse. Mm -hmm. He wasn't an Athenian citizen. You couldn't become a citizen if you weren't born there. Um, but he had become very wealthy through his arms factory. And he was highly motivated to help, not only by his loyalty to the democracy, but uh, the 30 had executed his brother, Polemarchus, and had come very close to executing him. So he provided hundreds of mercenaries and shields for the enterprise. And um, the, the exiles were, were, were quite uh, successful uh, in their attempts. The uh, Spartans, the sorry, the the thirty tyrants who were Athenians, the the thirty tyrants were very worried about their security, uh, and they established a secondary power base nearby. Uh, in no way deterred by the fact that this project required the murder of many of the inhabitants of the town in which they set up shop. Well, Thrasybulus and his men advanced on the port of Piraeus. They seized the hill of Munichia, overlooking it, and they were at a great advantage fighting against the 30 because the 30 were attacking uphill and Thrasybulus and Democrats were successful. And then something really remarkable happened. The Spartan king Pausanias himself went to Athens to see what could be done. He was sick of being upstaged by Lysander and he was also worried that Lysander was planning to make Athens his personal fiefdom. Mm -hmm. he, he started out by fighting against the Democrats as was expected, but then he realized that the Democrats were incredibly ferocious, and his own allies were not very enthusiastic. And he did an about-face. He turned his energies towards bringing about a reconciliation between the parties. And each side laid down its arms, and they agreed on the first recorded amnesty in history. <laughs> they agreed that all the property that the 30 had confiscated would be returned. No one was to be prosecuted for crimes committed before 403, with the exception of acts like murder, which the 30 had done. And in September of 403, Thrasybulus led his men unopposed to the Acropolis, where they sacrificed to Athena in gratitude for the salvation of the city. And Critias, Plato's relative, who'd been the leader of the 30, was buried in a tomb. And on that tomb, there was a personification of oligarchy setting fire to democracy. <laughs> and on it were inscribed the words, this is a memorial to good men who for a short time restrained the hubris of the damned democracy of the Athenians. That was not put up there by 
Trisabulous. <laughs> <laughs> the amnesty did not include the 30. Mm-hmm. It did not include the 30. Who it did include, of course, was Socrates. So that one of the reasons that he was accused of but um, one of the reasons that he was accused of corrupting the young and not believing in the right gods and teaching other gods, yada, yada, one of the reasons for this was that he um, could not be tried for anything he had done before 403. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he could not uh, be, be tried for, for complicity with the 30. Mm-hmm. But, but we know, I mean, but having said that, that trial is really everyone's thinking about what he had done before. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, everyone is thinking about two things, I think. They were thinking about his relationships with people like Critias and Alcibiades. Alcibiades, yeah. Alcibiades was one of his pet pupils. They were thinking about that. And they were also thinking about Aristophanes' play about 20 years before, The Clouds, in which Socrates is portrayed as running a think shop up in the sky where he teaches people absolutely ridiculous and evil things. Mm-hmm. And uh, this caricature Socrates mentions in mm-hmm. his speech, he says, you know, there are prejudices against me, and one of them has to do with that play. Mm-hmm. You uh, point out, and something I had not realized, is that Athens was stable after the deposition of the 30. Um, why? Uh, because yeah, they got Athens, they gotten all the bad blood out. I mean, what's the but you would think that uh, well, right? Yeah, no, that you you would think absolutely. Um, but what happened was that um, the experience of the thirty was so traumatic uh, that the Athenian state was probably the most stable state in the fourth century. Hmm. Um, there were very strict laws against. Uh, doing anything to call the democracy into question. Um, It was very dangerous to be suspected of oligarchic sympathies. And there were many, many civil wars throughout Greece in the fourth century, not in Athens. So Sparta, you had earlier said that that Sparta um, was then uh, ruled by a king who the army was a hammer and everything was a nail. Right. Um, He was toying with the idea of doing something very unspartan, which was creating a creating a greater empire. Um, He fights in uh, Asia for well, no particular reason, Um, but uh, eventually. Sparta falls, um, and, and, and from the strangest of, of, of sources, it finds an antagonist arises in Thebes, which had been an ally of Sparta, which right. had been very uh, famously uh, during the Persian War, had been an ally of Persia against the rest of Greece. Right. Uh, um, not the place that you would expect to find a sort of uh, agrarian Republican revolution, but uh, sure enough, that's where one starts, and eventually a man arises who sees uh, Sparta's sort of strategic weak point is its slaves. Right. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's extremely uh, interesting what what happens um, in in Thebes. Um, the, the the Spartans began uh, meddling in Theban government almost immediately after. Uh, immediately after the end of the Peloponnesian War. And um, at that, by, by 380, um, 
they had really pushed things too far, and um, a great leader arose in the form of a man named Epaminondas. Um, he was a very charismatic leader, and he had a close associate or a close friend, Pelopidas, who was a military genius, and the two of them uh, together very much built up the power of Thebes. And um, in 375, um, the there was an astonishing event because the Spartans were defeated by a smaller number of Thebans in a skirmish. And this was really something. Uh, so this was a, a sign of, of things to come. Um, and uh, the Spartans did not recognize early enough how much of a threat the Thebans were, and that that was a uh, that was a mistake. Um, the the unit that had defeated the two Spartan brigades in 375 um, was the unit called the Sacred Band, and this had been established by Pelopidas, and he was leading it at that battle in 375. Uh, the, the Sacred Man probably got its name because it originally guarded the shrines on the Theban citadel. We're, we're not really sure. But it consisted of 150 pairs of lovers who were expected to fight all the more bravely so as not to disgrace themselves in the eyes of their partners in love. Um, and this was a very important arm of the Theban military, and it, it proved very important when the Thebans and the Spartans had a very large pitched battle in 371. What had happened was that the Greeks had been fighting throughout the century. They kept making pieces called common pieces, but they, they, they never took. And finally, in 371, there was a peace conference again held in Sparta, attended by delegates from all over, as well as Persia. And uh, there was a lot of talk about autonomy. Autonomy was very important to Greeks, and it was agreed that all armies and garrisons would be recalled. And when it came time to swear to the peace, the Spartans signed on behalf of themselves and their allies in the Peloponnesian League. Nobody objected. The Athenians signed for themselves, but their allies, because by now they had another league, their allies signed separately, city by city. The Thebans at first signed just for themselves, but the next day, Epaminondas came back. And he was worried that with all this talk of autonomy, the Spartans were going to try to dismantle the league that the Thebans had, the Boeotian League. Mm -hmm. And so he said, no, no, I want, I'm not going to sign. I, I'm, I demand that the wording be changed. Instead of signing for Thebes, I want to sign for all of Boeotia. Well, uh, not suspecting the ominous chain of events he was setting in motion, the Spartan king Agesilaus then simply erased the Thebans' name from the list of signatories, isolating the Thebans completely in the world of Greek diplomacy. And probably a lot of people thought this was a fine thing, but they, they were very wrong because the Thebans were going to prove very dangerous enemies. The Athenians and Spartans dutifully recalled all of their armies, with one exception. The other of the two Spartan kings, a fellow named Cleombrotus, was already in the field, and instead of ordering him home, Agesilaus told him to march against the Thebans unless they would grant autonomy to the cities of Boeotia. Well, the Thebans refused, and there was a battle. 
between the Thebans and King Cleombrotus and his Spartans at a place named Leuctra, a flat plain. And Epaminondas had a plan. Theban and Spartan forces would go head-to-head straight off. King Cleombrotus had stationed himself and his royal guard among the Spartan infantry on the right wing, so Epaminondas placed the Thebans on the left wing behind the cavalry, including Pelopidas leading the sacred band. And the Thebans made their phalanx 50 men deep. That is extraordinary. A normal Greek phalanx would line up eight men deep. Occasionally, uh, at one battle, the Thebans had once lined up 25 men deep, but 50 is absolutely extraordinary. And of course, this was very risky because this is going to narrow the width of your line. Mm-hmm. But in event, the, the risk paid off. So first goes the cavalry, then the sacred band, and uh, it doesn't go so well for the Spartans. The fighting began around the middle of the day. The Spartans had lunched, and they were probably a little high on the wine <laughs> that they had drunk. Um, the cavalry skirmish uh, went to the Thebans, it, it seems, and then Pelopidas charged with the sacred band, and the wedge, 50 men deep, pressed in uh, behind them. And King Cleombrotus was killed. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the first time a Spartan king had fallen in battle since Leonidas had died protecting the Thermopylae Pass in 480 with the famous 300. And it, it took the Spartans some time fully to absorb the magnitude of the disaster that had befallen them. But if anybody had paused to do the math, he would have realized that the number of Spartan soldiers, which, as we were saying earlier, were 8,000 at mm-hmm. the Battle of Plataea during the Persian Wars in 479, had now fallen to one-tenth of that. So, you know, their reputation was shot. When the news of the disaster reached Sparta, it's a wonderful story in Xenophon, the magistrates informed their next of kin as to what had happened, but warned the women not to cry out, but to endure their suffering in silence. And on the next day, Xenophon says, you could see the relatives of those who had been killed going around with bright and happy faces, while most of the survivors were ashamed and they kept to themselves. And even if they went out in public, they looked extremely unhappy. And when Sparta's weakness became apparent to their allies, there were democratic revolutions. Throughout the Peloponnesus, and Epaminandus marched into the Peloponnesus with all the men he had picked up in support, and he had about maybe well, over 40,000 men. I don't think he had 50,000, but he had over 40,000. They liberated the Helots. They helped them establish their own state. And and within just a few years, Thebes under Epaminondas and Pelopidas had succeeded where generations of Athenians had failed. Sparta uh-huh. was finished as a major power on the international scene. And of course, its economy was crippled by the loss of the massive underclass yeah. that it had yeah. taken for granted for so long. It, uh, they had ended the slave society uh, that yeah. that had su- supported the entire educational uh, military training system of Sparta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the that is the even longer uh, Peloponnesian War. Um, when I first read Thucydides, it was an international relations class. Very uh, commonly, yes. Very common, and, and it was in the 80s. And at the time, it was a Cold War metaphor. Right. Um, in the last few years, uh, it seems to be being appropriated again 
Uh, I think it's Graham Allison with his uh, discussion right. of Thucydides' trap. Right. Um, as historians, um, we kind of hate to these kind of this rulemaking political scientist thing. Uh, right. For one, it sort of distorts the past at the expense of uh, and, and, and twists it into uh, syllogisms, uh, which aren't always so neat as they think. Right. Um, uh, yet, uh, it seems almost impossible to prevent it. Right. Um, but what um, I this is it, it, it often seems to me this idea that the history provides lessons that we ignore at our peril. Uh, that, that fails to understand the fact that we haven't really learned from them yet. Um, are there just too many lessons to learn from the Peloponnesian War? Um, um, I mean, we can, we can find a lesson, we can find a proof text somewhere in Thucydides or in Xenophon. We can find an incident in, in the Peloponnesian War that will prove anything. Right. Um, and yet, nonetheless, uh, when we read it, we have a feeling that there's something here to learn. Right. Um, I don't know how to reconcile those those two those two feelings. Right, um, and I, I can certainly understand because there there is difficulty uh, reconciling them. There's been uh, a lot of disagreement uh, about what we can learn from history. There's the um, famous statement of George Santayana, um, who said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But then there's the German philosopher Hegel, who said basically nobody ever learned anything from the study of history, except that nobody ever learned anything from <laughs> the right. study of history. Yeah. Um, he said, what experience and history teaches us is that people and governments have never learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. So it, it's, a very, uh, it's a very difficult uh, question. Um, we, it, it certainly has been argued, as you said, that the Cold War uh, has, it's coming out of World War II uh, is, is similar to uh, many things in the Peloponnesian War, Athens and Sparta, of course, have been compared. Um, the conflict and the opposition between them have been compared to that between the United States and Russia. Uh, during World War II, Spartans were sometimes compared to Nazis, mm -hmm. not only by their enemies, but in fact, sometimes, uh, <laughs> but not only... Uh, but by the not, enemies of the Nazis, but sometimes by the Nazis themselves. Uh, Hitler expressed the wish that all other nations would become helots for the German warrior class. Mm -hmm. and, and classicists in both England and America compared the Gestapo with the Spartan secret police, the Cryptea, that was designed to keep the helots in line by nocturnal murders. The Cryptea was a sort of rite of passage for young Spartan men, and they would sent out into the countryside to spy out any particularly uppity helots and, and, and kill them. And, and during the Cold War, many people in the West drew parallels between the Athens-Sparta opposition and, and that between America and Russia. And of course, these parallels in the West um, inevitably flattered the creativity and freedom and openness of America and Athens over the mindless anthills, as some people called them, mm -hmm. of Sparta and Russia, where each citizen just functioned as a, a cog in a wheel. And uh, certainly American action in, in Vietnam and Iraq has prompted parallels with the expedition to Sicily, mm -hmm. a place far away about which there was inadequate information, where the national interest was not clear. Um, these parallels have certainly been made uh, very uh, vociferously 
and um, they, they've been made not not only uh, by political scientists but also by uh, Greek historians. Um, but it, it is uh, very tri- a tricky business making these uh, facile, one might say, uh, parallels. But we we do learn a great deal from the the Peloponnesian War. We we learn how how people act under stress. Uh, Thucydides talks about the stress of war and says that war is, he says, a violent teacher. Um, we, we learn how people act under the stress of an epidemic. Uh, Thucydides writes at great length, as we said, about the way the Athenian community uh, reacted to the stress of the plague. Um, we, we learn also, of course, things about isolationism versus entangling alliances. Um, and the Spartans got into enormous difficulty with uh, defending their alliance against the attacks of the Athenians. I think we, we can probably say that history does repeat itself, but uh, certainly never in the same form. Um, people are complex uh, creatures. Uh, pe- people often say that Thucydides was a scientific historian, uh, but the, you, you can't really have scientific history because history is people or historiography, the writing of history, is, is people writing about people. Hmm. And, and people are very complex organisms. My guest today has been Jennifer T. Roberts. She's the author of The Plague of War, Athens, Sparta, and the Struggle for Ancient Greece. Jennifer, th- thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks very much for having me, Al. It's always a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 